You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. You know, I, uh, and more of you will know in a moment, that I write Yelp reviews. You know this? Here, here's, here's, the, here's the page. I have like over 400 reviews. And people tell me, they go to a popular restaurant in town, they look at the, the review list, and they see my face, and then they ask me about it. So if you're interested, you'll find my take on a variety of restaurants if you want. I know the restaurateurs here are going to kill me because the uh, Yelp isn't too nice to them. But don't, don't, look up, don't look it up right now, if you could please just do me a favor. I'm a little, uh, I'm a little embarrassed about it. But I also, uh, I, yeah, I like the attention too, right? So there's, a, there's some competing forces of shame and attention seeking that happens within me regularly and it kind of upsets my stomach. So don't, don't, don't exploit that too much. And I was embarrassed when Laura, my friend, tweeted out that her pastor had prolific uh, Yelp reviews. You can see six years, I, I've been on the Yelp elite squad. I think that just means that people that uh, make Yelp's uh, stock stay okay, which, by the way, it isn't. So if you're interested in acquiring a, a company, now's the time. If you have, like, what, $12, $12 million? Something, that's not that much. So you could probably do it. <laughs> anyway, these things kind of, like, in another time, somebody uh, led, read uh, one of my reviews out loud in public because it was particularly mean-spirited, I think, and they wanted to share how mean their pastor was to a rib joint in the Poconos. So, the things I do. There's nothing easier than criticizing, of course, so why not do it for fun on the internet, right? <laughs> anyway, I, seriously, I, I like good food, and I mainly write to, about positive experiences. You can see I have a, a, a bell curve distribution but it skews positive, so they're mainly four and three star reviews. So I'm not just there to rip apart your restaurant. But I want a positive experience uh, when I'm eating food out, and I especially pay attention to the hospitality that I receive in restaurants. Have you, uh, that's really important to me. This is my favorite question a server can ask me. Have you been here before? Did you ever get asked that? I really like when they ask me that. Because then they can explain things to me. I like things being explained. I like clear explanations. I like clear menu descriptions. Usually, hopefully in a language I understand. I like instructions on how and what to order. You know, I like knowing what pies you have by the slice. Where's the pizza man? I like your specials on a chalkboard menu. Don't give me some litany of uh, things that you've made, the last of which will be the only one I remember. Do you ever go to a restaurant the server gives you like 10 different items and you're like, okay, I'll take the last one. You know, I don't remember, I can't keep track of everything. I like knowing too, like how much, I'm, I'm this hungry, how much should I order? Ever ask someone this question? I don't want to over order, that's embarrassing. I want help, I want guidance, I want leadership, right? I want the server to lead me. Um, but I want, I want to be included in the experience. And I want, I want help to get there. Can we keep talking about restaurants for a second? Not every restaurant values that. In fact, some restaurants are not aspiring toward that at all. And they just kind of want to get by. And I understand that. Unfortunately, these local places have a unique charm to them. They're not trying to wow you. 
but even in their, uh, in their authenticity, they charm you and they enchant you and they attract like, they could attract like millions of Instagram photographers. So if you, want some, if you have some time today or tomorrow, this is my favorite long read of the week. So this is like a 15 minute reading on your phone if that's what you want to do. And it's a, it's a story about how a, 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 uh, a burger joint that was ranked very highly in a publication by virtue of it being um, highly rated was uh, actually went bankrupt, went out of business because it got too much attention. Um, and the staff couldn't handle this volume. So it's really interesting to see what the, kind of the, this culture of critique that I'm talking about can do to a place. This is the most revealing uh, part of the story, which talks about its kind of viral popularity. How about a, a, like a journalist-style reader? Read this. Can you, can you see this? Someone read it. Beth, will you read it out loud? You, have a, you, you can do it. So when it came time to pick the number one place, I can't pretend that the stuff I noticed when I first walked in, the uh, authenticity of the place, didn't help push it to the top of the list. In the oversaturated, over-extra food world we currently reside in, wall art not from a local graffiti artist and a beer list not put together by a Cicerone, and a color scheme not picked out by a nationally lauded design firm feels almost refreshing. Stanek's Burger can compete with any burger place in the country, but I'd be lying if I said the narrative didn't push it over the top. The lack, almost the, the lack of a charm of the place the fact that it wasn't trendy, the fact that it was local made it appealing. It wasn't, it wasn't catered to the Brooklyn-style hipster, or maybe you could say the Fishtown-style one, it, 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 but, it, but that made it more appealing to them. You see how that worked? The idea is it's better because it's not for me. And I think it takes a lot of privilege to be able to appreciate something that isn't catered to you, and it takes even more um, entitlement to access it yourself as if it was. I'm really overstating this, okay? But I want to give you an idea about how these things work. And I'd be interested in your feedback on this, too. But that's the part I want to settle on. It takes a lot of privilege and also perhaps secure attachment to be able to navigate less than inclusive places. That's where I'm going. It takes a lot of capacity to be at home at a party full of people you don't know and traditions you aren't accustomed to. This is what Wes was talking about, too. This is what Jenna was bringing to us, too. You ever go to a party and you don't know anybody and you figure out, I don't know how I'm going to figure out this, this room out. And you see the one person, usually a guy, that can figure out the whole room and just uh, avail himself to, the, to make, make, it, make it their own space. It takes a lot of, uh, I'm saying privilege here, security, um, even personality to get there. It takes a lot of energy to even find a bathroom in a new restaurant. You ever go into the kitchen by accident? See, I'm cavalier and dumb, so that has frequent happen. happen. <laughs> so it's not a, good, not a good combination. Or, you know, you, how, do I, how do I even order off of this? Or the, sometimes the menu's in French, and I'm like, oh, man. I don't even know what consonants to pronounce in this language. And then you point to the menu, to the server, like you can't talk. You're like, I'll take that one. And that takes, that takes energy, confidence, privilege. I don't, we all don't have that. It's, it's most of us are struggling just to find our place in the world. And I think it's incumbent, this is, this is, this is, the, this is your shift, of the church to be inclusive of people while also being authentic. To be real but welcoming. 
We can be hospitable without being generic, without even just being a big box church. Does that make sense? We want to have character, a distinctiveness, something that's unique about us, something that's distinctive about us, while not making our character and distinctiveness something that might exclude somebody from our fellowship. You holding the tension with me? People might self-select out. That's true. We're not for everyone. But I, if, they, if, they do to not, if they do self-select out and they don't want to be here, I at least want it to be because it wasn't their thing. And that's fine. Not because I made it impossible for it to be their thing. Does that make sense? In other words, someone might not, to be, uh, not, not, might not be into Jesus um, even as we delicate, delicately introduce Jesus to them. And that's fine. If you aren't, it'll be hard for you to hang here. But you might just be a, we might just be bulls in china shops and no one will be able to get anywhere because we're too, we're too rigid about how things are supposed to work. Or the other extreme is we're too formless and there's nothing to get into because there is no, there's no structure to the thing anyway. There's no boundaries to it. There's no parameters to it. Rigid enough, we want to be rigid enough, structured enough, formed enough to have substance in which to enter but flexible enough that people can enter in easily, right? That's, 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 the, that's, the, that's the trick. So we're asking ourselves, or at least I am, how do I bring the gospel to the present with great flexibility? How, how can I be authentic and inclusive? How can I be rigid but also flexible? How can I, how can I keep the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and put it into today's context today's time and place. For the restaurant owner, the question is, how can I make my place as accessible as possible to the people around me without losing it just to uh, mundanity, to uh, characterlessness? Does that make sense? It's a tricky thing to do. There's a journey that we can take and that we're on here together towards a more inclusive community. We're talking about journeys that, that take place in the, in the Bible, particularly, and, and, and one is seemingly toward a more inclusive community. I don't want to overstate it, because sometimes we Christians talk about how exclusive the Old Testament is and how inclusive the New Testament is, but I think that there, and there were some shifts in how our faith developed, but they're not that simplistic. As we've spoken about the last few weeks, God made a covenant with Abraham creating a new people to whom he promised the nation, and that nation effectively was formed through all who were able to escape Egypt out of oppression led by Moses. You know, you might think perhaps that the Jewish ethnic identity made up the, the people of Israel in the Bible, and you might think of that as something that's rigid, but in my reading, it's much more formless than that. What bonded the people together was their common experience of liberation and then their subsequent adherence to the law given to them by God. The law, which was positioned to be inclusive and welcoming of people. That's the whole story. Welcoming, including, making room and hospitality. We can talk more about that at another time, but people basically could get into the get into the mix by, 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 by adopting the, the order of Israel. And it wasn't that hard to do it. They didn't need to be Jewish, whatever that means, because their identity was uh, formed in action and in belief. 
So the Jewish people have an identity that God is working with them. They have a sense of who they are, right? Not too rigid, not formless. It's in a good place. There's some political turmoil in Israel that leads to a diaspora. Familiar with that word? The people spread around all over the land. And this is augmented by their uh, conquest. The Persian Empire eventually took over Israel. But they allowed Judaism to occur legally in the Persian Empire. And so what happened was, the, 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 if you ever read, read the story of Esther in the Bible, it takes place under, uh, in the Persian Empire, and Esther is trying to find out her Jewish identity. The same thing was happening to a lot of people, and the, and the culture was spreading. And even, even the Bible, the Hebrew Bible that we have, was spreading. And it was translated into Aramaic, and eventually into Greek, too. And so uh, Judaism was becoming more international, more spread, more ecumenical. But, but the cost of that kind of spreading was a loss of identity. You know, in a sense, it was becoming more inclusive, but it was losing what it was as a result of that. Does that make sense? That's the thing we're talking about. How can I be inclusive while maintaining my character? How can I, how can I expand without losing what I really am, right? That's the, that's the question even the Jewish people are wondering in their diaspora as um, the Old Testament is translated in a variety of language, touching major other groups of people. And that's the, that's the tension that's in the New Testament, it emerges about what, what, how should they be influenced by their new overlords, the Romans? This would be the question that the New Testament writers and Jewish people are thinking about because now Israel's under Roman occupation where Judaism is still a legal religion, but of course it's being influenced by Rome. And you see this tension here in the Bible with one political party called the Sadducees who would, I would say is in bed with the Roman Empire. And they're... they're uh, they're not really fighting back about any sort of a Hellenistic influence they might have, any um, Greco-Roman influence on Judaism. And then you have another party called the Pharisees, who are much more rigid, much more structured. Sometimes they, uh, they get maligned in the Bible as being legalistic and, 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 and rigid. They're, they're, they're resisting any sort of political compromise. And the, the New Testament is largely written with this sort of thesis in mind. And of course, it's written in Greek to Hellenize Jews and Greeks. They're the recipients of the book. So it's not surprising that we often hear of the Pharisees, this rigid political party that's trying to keep Rome out of the temple, out of Judaism, while we often hear them uh, written about in a negative light. Because the New Testament itself is trying to be inclusive of Greek people. And so there's a there's a, there's a polemical tone to it. There's a, it's, a, it's like a written criticism of early uh, rabbinic Judaism or the Judaism at the time. And so you have this tension happening. How much should we be influenced by Rome? How much should we in, be influenced by this Greek culture that surrounds us? And how firmly should we hold to our roots that God gave us, to the law that God gave us, to the identity that we have as people that God gave us? So this is the tension that the Apostle Paul is notable for holding. The entire book of Galatians speaks to this subject, so does Romans. Paul's trying to figure out how the church can be both welcoming and inclusive of Jews and Gentiles, Jewish people and then everyone else. It's what, it's what leads Paul to write this little sentence in Galatians 5. For, me, for in the Messiah Jesus, neither circumcision 
or uncircumcision has any power. What matters is faith working itself out through love, or working through love, is what N.T. Wright's saying up here. The idea being Jewish customs can't keep you out of the church because that's not the element, the elemental nature of the church. What matters is faith working itself out through love. This new form of faith, this new form of faith is love working itself out, faith working itself out. That's the flexible form that allows all sorts of people to come into the fold regardless of how strictly Jewish they are. You can be as Jewish as you want in this new church. You just can't impose that upon everyone else because other people aren't going to get into it. The new form is an inclusive, salvific form. It's a form that saves you. Jesus is saving the whole world. As Paul says, Jesus is grafting new people onto the uh, the olive tree, the olive tree of uh, salvation. And in a small section here of Romans 11, this olive tree represents the promise of salvation. The branches, uh, there were some branches that were broken off, that were unfaithful, but they made room for, uh, for new branches. The ones broken off are the ones keeping the Gentiles out. And so they're cut off so that new room can form on this olive tree. Let's, let's, let's read this passage. It's about 13 verses, so that's, 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 maybe this is the long read of your evening. Someone out loud read this, will you? But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, the Gentiles, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in their place to share the rich root of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it is not you that support the root the root that supports you. Will you say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in? That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But if you stand only, but if you stand only through faith, so do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, perhaps he will not spare you. Keep going. Know then the kindness and the severity of God severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness towards you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And even those of Israel, if they do not persist in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you have been cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. If you're confused about what's happening in the passage, Paul is an urban kind of guy who really has no actual knowledge of farming, and so he's trying to write an analogy, and it's a little, it's a little bit beyond his scope, although this is fairly accurate as far as I can tell. So it's almost like me telling you about farming would be how, how it works. So if you're confused, there's a reason for that, and that's okay. I'm not making fun of it. I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm just helping you along here. Um, he's describing inclusion. Did you catch that? 
The Jewish people are, gra- are, are, are given this promise, but they're ungrafted from the tree because of their lack of inclusion. And so other people are added to the mix. But he warns the Gentiles, if you start boasting because of your special qualification, you might be cut off too. The idea is that we're all humbly um, um, joining a common community together, not by any of our own virtue, not because of our ethnicity, not because of our identity, but because of God's mercy, because God sees us as the beloved, not because of anything we did. And so hold that humility in your inclusion. You're here because God made space for you, and God is making space for everyone. That's the, whole, that's the whole message. That's the whole idea. Everyone can get in. But Paul ends with this very generous section in 25 and 26 here. That's the second paragraph that's up here. Israel is hardened so that the full number of Gentiles has come in, and then all Israel will be saved. Well, that little sentence there is up for a lot of discussion, um, probably the most interpreted uh, uh, commented on passage like ever. I have my own interpretation of what exactly this means, but I don't want to get into that right now. I really want to show you that the New Testament and, and, and it, with God is making a more inclusive community where a lot of different people can get in. They're being inclusive, but they're not losing their character. They're bringing the gospel to the present with great flexibility. My main point is that Paul's thesis is, in Romans is one of radical inclusion. God's mercy is the constant. God's mercy is the rigid part of the community. God's mercy and God's love is the unchanging part of the community. It's the authenticity of the community. And there's nothing we can do to dilute that. In fact, the posture of God's love is inherently welcoming. And so God holds you and God welcomes you and he welcomes all kinds of people into the community. But the character of it isn't diluted, isn't changed. God's extension of mercy endlessly to everybody is how flexible our faith can be. Paul is asking himself the question, what prevents Greek people from entering into Christian community? Right? In Acts, you see the Jerusalem Council uh, discerning that Jewish customs are preventing people from entering community, not unlike the circumcision that we listed a second ago. And the council goes to great lengths to reduce those customs um, in order to let Greek people enter in. Paul's asking himself the same question we're asking today. This is a good question for Christians to ask themselves. How do we bring the gospel to the present with great flexibility? How do we bring the gospel now so that, so that um, People that don't have a, a, a very religious background can enter in. How does it work? And then the question for us is, who can't get in today? And what can we do about it? How can we move toward inclusion without losing ourselves to formlessness? What kind of olive branch isn't on the tree today that we can help graft on? How can we help people feel at home and welcome and loved at the, at the restaurant, so to speak, without making the food bland? How can we maintain our character while being inclusive? It's a good exercise to think about. It's a good, it's a good, it's at least a, it's good food for thought at the very least. And I think we should keep thinking about it and discussing it. This was largely behind um, our own 
delicate in some ways and kind of ham-fisted in other ways at a relatively rapid pace became more apparently uh, inclusive or held a more apparently inclusive posture toward LGBT folks in covenant, in marriage, in leadership, in circle of hope. We moved in that direction. You could say over the last four years or you could say over the last 20 years, depending on when you start counting. Um, and this, this kind of... Uh, um, apparentness about her inclusion was done with this sort of thing in mind. Um, this sort of inclusion, inclusive posture. The church as a whole, in Circle of Hope and beyond Circle of Hope, is working on grafting on to the olive tree. And I, I think it's struggling to do it, quite frankly, as a whole, but I think it's kind of stumbling forward in the right direction which is sometimes how we do these things. The, the notion of inclusion, though, isn't just a Christian idea. You know, it's a matter of fact, uh, it's a matter of uh, fact part of postmodern culture. I want to be careful with this because there is such a thing as a dilution of, of principles in the name of inclusion. And as we continue to come up with new identities to define ourselves, certain people known for exclusion, are saying, you aren't tolerating me. They're using the inclusive language in order for you to tolerate their exclusion. This is a big problem that's happening. Did you follow what I said? So, so, so this is, I, I am not going to go there because what, what does that do? It undoes, it undoes the rigid rule of the community, which is God's endless love and mercy. That's, the, that's what's authoring the community. And if, if you abuse that just to include people who will exclude with impunity, you're, you're missing the point. That's the kind of thing that can happen if we're too formless and not formed, if we don't have conviction about it. <coughs> You can let wolves in among sheeps because wolves want to be accepted too. We can start becoming something else altogether when we're afraid to ungraft the faithful, the unfaithful. And this is sort of an aggressive posture because we started with being inclusive. But if people insist with impunity to be exclusive, we can start talking about what their posture actually does to exclude. So there's room here for some form and some structure. Does that make sense? Some discipleship, you might say. No, Jesus' love is authoring who we are and how we're being included in community, but we're being disciples together. We're moving in a common direction. So the question for us is, what keeps people from entering into our community? What, what um, and I, I, I mean this um, literally, what unwritten rules do we have? What goes without saying? What customs do we have that, might other, that others might find prohibitive or difficult? What do we need to do then? What do we need to let go of? I think it's a good discernment question for every cell here. What, what are the things that keep people away? And make it personal. Make it about who we are in community. Don't make it about something else necessarily because you can list off all the other problems with the other churches, right? What are we doing here? How do we become more inclusive? How do we keep moving toward inclusion? And how can we keep expressing this, this dictum from Paul, what matters is faith, expressing itself through love. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.